0: Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. In this HCI podcast episode, I talk with Lane Kawaoka about the shifts in his career, starting in civil engineering and construction management, leaving the corporate grind, and ultimately getting into real estate and investment strategies to generate passive income streams. Kawaoka, welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast.
1: Hey, thanks for having me, John.
0: I'm really excited to have the chance to talk with you uh, and for my listeners to have a little bit more uh, experience listening to a leader, an entrepreneur who uh, works in the arenas that you work. So I'm going to share in just a moment your bio so people have a little bit more of a sense uh, for, for what you do. Um, and today we're going to be talking about how your journey, your, your career um, has been shaped over time and how you work with people uh, and seek to, to help, uh, you know, both for yourself and for others to, to have meaning in their work and to find success. So that's really gonna be the focus uh, for today. Lane Kauaoka currently owns 3,500 plus units, Across the U.S., he lives in Hawaii and recently quit his day job as a professional engineer with an MS in civil engineering and construction management, a BS in industrial engineering. Lane partners with investors who want to build their portfolio but are too busy to mess with tenants, toilets, and termites, as he puts it, by curating opportunities um, where his investors have personal access to him and and know that Lane has personally put his money on the line too. Uh, Lane reverse engineers the wealth-building strategies that the rich use uh, to the middle class via the top 50 investing podcasts, simplypassivecashflow.com, and Lane's mission is to help hardworking professionals out of the rat race, one free strategy call at a time. Uh, So again, uh, welcome to the podcast, and anything else that you would like to add before we really dive on into the discussion today?
1: Yeah, no, I mean... Kind of kind of start at the top. I mean um, you know I, I like a lot of people was you know, kind of groomed to go to school, get a day job and um, kind of follow what I call linear path. So that's what I did back in 2007. I graduated from the University of Washington with a bachelor's of industrial engineering and I went to work for a large uh, I would say fortune 500 fortune 50 company as a construction supervisor, construction manager. And uh, that was where you know, everybody has that first job that they don't like, right? But the reason why you don't like it is because you actually have to like learn a lot of stuff and it's, it's hard and it puts you to the ringer. Um, but that was my first job was leading teams of um, union staff, working out in the fields, uh, traveling workforce uh, with guys 55, 60 years, ages of older with 30 years of experience. So that was kind of how I was thrown into the fire of my first, first go around.
0: Yeah. Awesome. And, and you really do have a unique um, kind of career trajectory and transition, civil engineering, construction management, um, and then into real estate and, and your focus on trying to help others build wealth um, uh, through some of your strategies Uh, in, in our pre uh, pre pre-interview preparation. Uh, you mentioned the story of how one of your team members died on the job uh, and how that was really one of the reasons that you ended up leaving corporate America. Uh, would you mind uh, sharing a little bit more about that story and explaining you know, what impact that had on you and why that was such a jarring uh, moment that caused you to kind of reassess everything and make, and make a new uh, direction in your
1: career? Yeah, so you know, my first, you know, first and second year on the job, you know, I got put on this uh, to manage this one crew. We traveled around five different states throughout the whole year, we got to know each other um, pretty well. Um, and even though I'm their boss, you know, I'm, I, you know, you kind of bond with these guys. These are these are the guys you kind of go to war with every day. It is a pretty dangerous job when you're working construction, especially um, you know out there where there's nobody else around. No cell phone signal, no nothing out in the woods, and a few years later, um, I had changed roles, um, got to be more of a project manager, got my office job, got out of the field where I, you know, have to wake up at five thirty every morning to, to drive to the job briefing site, and um, a company email came out. You know, this is a forty thousand employee company. That that individual who was part of my small crew had passed away because of a work. Um, accident I guess what happened he was he was walking along and then you know something hit this thing it hit him and it's just it was unfortunate and the company sort of it wasn't about the person it would say well you know this this uh, particular rule was violated which is like always be alert alert and attentive and I'm like you know what kind of bs is that right (laughs) somebody died and they're trying to make it as an example for the rules of some stupid thing about being alert and attentive um And, you know, that kind of leads into my other part of my story where I started to buy rental properties throughout this time. At the time, I only had a few of them, but I quickly saw how each rental property brought me a few thousand dollars of passive income every month, or a few hundred dollars of passive income per property. And I wasn't there yet to replace my income, but the light was at the end of the tunnel. And this was all happening at the same time where, you know, I... I realize how working in a large company it's very dehumanizing, and you're just a number. And I saw this as my ticket outside of this world, and it kind of motivated me even more to kind of go after it. Yeah,
0: I mean, I I just can't even imagine what that would be like. Um, to wake up to that news, uh, it, it would certainly be jolting. But what would it be even more jolting? would be like, you described that email that you got from corporate, basically trying to wash their hands of liability. It, that's how I interpret what you said, <laughs> that they're right. trying to wash their hands of liability and and push the blame of the accident onto the victim. Um, and man, that, I mean, talk about insult to injury, you know, you, you're the the employees are in wor- his team and, and, and you, you know, you're all dealing with this news of, of his loss. And, and then you have to kind of deal with that. I, I've, I haven't dealt with anything like to that extreme in terms of like actual life and death, but I've seen those types of scenarios play out again and again and again in organizations. And despite whatever the best of intentions may have been from the company, the the result is almost always the same. It's demoralizing. Uh, it's, it, it, it diminishes trust, um, and everyone who's reading that email is simply saying, "Oh, I see how it is. If something bad happens, they're going to come after me. They're not going to have my back, and and they're just going to find a way to scapegoat." Uh, and that doesn't create for healthy organizations. Uh, it doesn't it doesn't um, result in in uh, healthy teams where people really truly will have their back. Instead, what it creates is an environment where everyone's trying to watch their own back and protect their own interests, and instead of really truly trying to collaborate and work uh, together in meaningful ways. Um, so, I mean, yeah, and it
1: and depends like on who's listening, right? Like, I think a lot of the younger guys, you're kind of you're in the the matrix, right? They're, they're they're telling you, they're kind of brainwashing you that, yeah, you know, your role is you know important. You're helping build this thing to help America or whatever. And then you start to realize, you know, five, ten years into your career, you become jaded, like everybody else. (laughs) You know, I I guess for me, it was that was just my moment of, you know, the inevitable of, you know, kind of realizing that, hey, this is I'm just a number here, and they don't really care. And um, yeah, my first few years, I powered through because I thought I was unique and special, doing a special thing for the special company. But no, it was you know, it's just part of the big machine.
0: Yeah. And that's really too bad. Um, and it's such a loss to the organization because then they lose good people like you who then go on to do innovative things and, and have great success where they could have tapped into your potential. And instead of doing that, uh, they created an environment where you felt disillusioned. Um, it's 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 the age old story in it and we see it replicated over and over and over again. Some of that is just kind of the natural, like maybe I'm hitting my midlife crisis or or I'm just a little disillusioned with corporate America after my idealistic stage. I mean, some of that might be a little natural, but it's also evidence of kind of a culture of dysfunction um, in a lot of corporations um, that treat people like numbers instead of people as people. And one thing that I've learned over time is that the best possible outcome uh, for organizations is when they're people-centric. Uh, That's people-centric both in terms of their employees, but also in terms of their customers. And when you're authentically uh, motivated towards bettering the people around you, great things happen. Innovation happens within the organization. People are more motivated. Uh, Customers are more loyal. Uh, People do interesting, creative, empowering things, right? When, When that kind of an environment is in place and when it's not in place bad things happen um, and you have dysfunction and, and people leave because they're not happy. And ultimately you have an organization that is churning through people and which is incredibly expensive and, and just all the negative outcomes that can come of it. Um, so you know, I, I think th- there's certainly possibility for people to have long fulfilling successful careers in corporate America um, but you're illustrating why so often people end up leaving and going the entrepreneurial path on their own. And, and it doesn't need to be that way. Like it's not an either or kind of thing. And, and we, could, we could find ways for people to have their entrepreneurial um, spirit and passions emboldened and supported
1: within organizations if, if organizational leaders would allow it. And a lot of times they just don't. Right. right. Yeah. I mean, I, a lot of my investors are high paid professionals, doctors, lawyers, engineers, accountants, and I always tell them, well, you know, you got to figure out what your highest and best use is. And you, you know, when we talk about entrepreneurship, it's not about really quitting your day job, right? It's about, you know, it could possibly just be buying a rental property and doing it that way. Um, So a lot of these guys have taken the attitude of, Look, I I know we're not here to uh, build dreams or, you know, make magic happen at this day job. I'm here for a paycheck. Make no mistake. But I'm going to take that paycheck and I'm going to buy rental properties, buy assets that produce income so that I can leave this job well before I'm 40 or 50 years old. It's a means to end.
0: Yeah. And well, that's so interesting. So let's let's talk a little bit more about that and and how you go about um, working with your clients to help them think through their wealth management strategies and help them to think about their their life goals uh, and mapping out what their current career looks like versus how they can do these entrepreneurial things, pursue their passion or just create passive income. So could you tell us a little bit about your approach when you start um, meeting with a new client?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, the first thing I, I do is trying to figure out, you know, the three big resources are time, mon- money, and knowledge, right? To real estate invest, you need money, you know, if not, you got to go make money, You need money to invest. So most of my clients have good paying, you know, um, you know they're high paid professionals, so they've got at least twenty thousand dollars to go buy a hundred thousand dollar house. And that's really how I started. My first five, seven years, I just bought a single family home one after another. And that was how I got my net worth up to a certain point, got to be more of a credit investor, but then started to invest in private placements and syndications. But you know, not to get too far ahead of ourselves, you know, it all starts with buying a rental property. And that's how you learn. And um, that's kind of how you get into the whole mindset of, you know, buying assets that produce more income for you. And, you know, it's not a get rich quick thing. But after about four or five years of buying a few rental properties, you, you start to realize like, hey, I just created like a third paycheck for myself a year. And how I can, you know, there's a path forward that's not going to take 20, 30 years, 40 years, like a normal, like wealth building dogma out there. And that's really why, you know, you kind of mentioned it earlier, right? You know, companies, they try and figure out a way to uh, motivate you to find your calling or your passion so that you're empowered to do something bigger for the company. But for me, the thing that really got me motivated was I just saw like, you know, like people like my parents, you know, you know, they had doctors, they had a doctorate and a master's degree, yet they were stuck at this day job for 30, 40 years. They're very frugal with their money. Yet they just put it into, you know, Wall Street investments like mutual funds and which have huge, huge fees. I mean, a lot like a lot of times a third of the returns are taken out. Um, you know, despite the expense ratio being zero point one. You know, it's actually way, way more than that. And that's, you know, when you look at buying a rental property one year and then buying another one, you know, you could quickly realize how you could be out of the rat race in less than 10 years. So to me it just didn't add up. Right. And and as I start to unravel it, there's this big um, and there's definitely this red pill finance out there of doing it this way.
0: Yeah. And and like you said, I mean, different people have different kind of life goals. um, And for you, this this made sense to pursue this kind of an approach. And maybe early on in your career, you didn't even realize this was an option. So so just laying out options for people. Um, I like how you described it early on in your introduction that you saw things as you were really on a very linear path. You saw things as a very linear type of a, an approach to a career. And that's certainly the traditional model, but that's that's not how it needs to be. Like there's lots of different models. Um, and And ultimately each person, well, I'm a big believer in people being empowered to understand their options and then making informed choices about what is the best fit given their values and their ultimate life goals, right? And, and for some people that would mean they're gonna tr- choose a traditional corporate job or they're gonna go into higher education or they're gonna go work for the government or they're gonna be an, like a traditional serial entrepreneur or they're gonna uh, invest. You know, There's all these different paths. And ultimately the most important thing is that people are making informed choices Uh, They know what their options are and then they find something that will be fulfilling for them and give them the opportunities that they're looking for and not feel stuck in something that they just felt like they had to go into for whatever reason. And then the rest of their life, they're just kind of in that thing because, because it's, they feel like it's too hard to reset. Um, You did that reset fairly early in your career and now you're on the path that you want to be on. Some people don't realize even that they, that maybe that reset, needs to happen and they don't realize it till they're 50. And then what, you know, at that point, you're, you're, uh, you're a little bit, not necessarily locked in, but you're more locked in than you would be if you were younger. So, um, so I think people just having the opportunity to really think through these sorts of things and then find something that will be fulfilling to you and and map with your values is, is really, really important.
1: Yeah. And kind of to say it in a different way, like, I mean, if you, I don't want to sound like all altruistic. I mean, because for my first five years doing this, I was out for myself, right? I needed to put my own oxygen mask on, to use that term. Um, I just wanted to get myself out of the rat race and get financially free. I didn't care about anybody else. And, and that's why I think to say, oh, you need to find your passion. I don't really believe that. I think people need to get self-preservation first. They need to feel like they're good. You know, I bought my first rental property in 2009. And then for the next five years, I kind of just plugged away at it. It wasn't until that, you know, I, I had three or four properties until I kind of got this the more abundance mindset where I realized I was good. I was going to be good. You know, I wasn't financially free by any means, you know, by 2014, 15. But I, I, I saw the path there. I was going to be financially free very soon. And then I started to realize that, man, life's going to be pretty. If I just sit on the beach and drink pina coladas and take Instagram pictures of my food and travel the world, like how some of these other financial independent guys are. And that was kind of where I was, you know, I started to see the whole matrix in terms of how the financial system works and, you know, how misleading and how it robs people of their retirement and their money in the process. And that was kind of where the, the switch happened for me to more of a mission based model. But, you know, I think a lot of people, they just have to put on their own oxygen mask first, right? I, I think it's hard to see, to go to step three without going to step two.
0: Yeah, and I think, you know, as you're describing that, it, it just reminds me simply of Maslow's hierarchy, um, that I do think people have their their physiological and safety needs. They need to have shelter. They need to feel, they need to feel, like their basic needs are met, like they're, that they're good. And until that's the case, um, it's, it's, you know, getting to this point of talking about purpose, meaning, um, more altruistic, um, virtuous, you know, reasons for why people do what they do. You don't ever get to that. You know, if if you're just worried about how you're going to live, um, day in and day out. And so I think everyone, um, goes through life stages where they have to address some of those different types of stages um, and, and make sure that their needs are met. So I think that's completely normal and, and something that we should definitely be thinking about. Uh, maybe before we finish up, uh, I was also just curious. So, you know, you, you as a civil engineer and construction management um, early in your career, You know, you you had project management responsibilities, construction supervisor responsibilities. I'm wondering how that your experience in leading in that capacity compares to how you lead um, today in in your current role.
1: Yeah. So a lot of it comes from the culture of that first company I worked for, which is a very conservative, um, almost militaristic company. So some of the big things were, you know, chain of command, you know, respect your chain of command. Do not. Two levels above, you only talk to your supervisor. In fact, you know a lot of meetings we had. We were instructed as the junior employees do not speak at meetings unless you are called upon by your immediate supervisor. Um, you know, you, there's no room for idealistic employees. You 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 work for one person that leads up up on the pyramid. And today, that really helps me. You know, as we manage 3,500 plus units spread over you know half a dozen states. You know, we work through our property managers. We are the asset manager, but we work through our property managers who are essentially our thirty dollars to $60,000 a year employees who work through their regional managers who get paid a little bit more. Um, we have a relationship with the boots on the ground, the property managers, but we respect their chain of command. You know, they are employees of their, their siloed company, and we employ as a third party that company. Um, so just respecting that and, uh, you know, I mean, we're all people here too, but respecting that chain of command and, um, you know, I, I let people, I, I let that company do the way they, things they, they do, but I also have set out clear expectation and guidelines and I manage those guidelines. Um, I don't care how they get there. Um, I'm hands off. But as soon as they start messing up, now I start to ask what is their, processes and procedures and their timeline so I can micromanage. So a lot of that came from I, you know, I, I didn't really have that kind of background. And for a lot of people saying, well, you know, you think you wasted that time working for you know those companies, you should have just done the real estate investing from the start. And as much as I joke around, yeah, that was a waste of time as I think about it, there were a lot of lessons that came from from you know the day job. That I took in terms of leadership and, and not only like, you know, just their financial, um, the way they did their financials too and, and help meetings and all type of stuff.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think that's a really good just life lesson that even when we have uh, experiences in the past that perhaps, um, you know, we're frustrated with, we like, why did I spend my time doing this? Now I'm doing this. Every, every experience can inform us if we're willing to learn from it. Um, the good, the bad and the ugly, right? And so even though you found a better trajectory for you, you can recognize now that you did learn a lot from that experience. And a lot of that can inform what you're doing today. I like how you focused on, you know, to the extent possible, you give autonomy, you you provide um, those you work with to, to produce their outcomes. You don't really care how they do it as long as they do it, right? Uh, outcome-based um, approaches to leading people I think is great because, you give them autonomy, you allow them to develop their own creativity uh, in, in solving problems and their own approach. And ultimately, you know, I don't care how someone, I don't care the XYZ, you know, how they do the process as long as the outcome is good. And if they have a, a an interesting way of doing it, that I, it's different than what I do, but it still has the same outcome, then that's great. And when that doesn't happen, then you can step in, you can coach, you can mentor, you can provide feedback, you can help them. Um, learn a more effective process, but you still don't have to have such tight control all the time, which actually is harder work for you. It's, it's easier to help develop an environment where people can be um, uh, self-governing and, and, and self-leading over their own work to the extent possible. And then, and then you as a leader can step in and help where needed. So I I think those are some really great um, insights Um, it's, it's really been great talking to you. I'm, I'm wondering if before we, we close, if you can just provide the listeners with a brief, um, briefly share how they can get in touch with you. How can they, um, get connected and learn more about what you're doing and reach out to you?
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, back in 2016, I started my podcast, simple passive cashflow found on Google's and iTunes and all the stitchers. And I just started journaling what I was doing in terms of real estate investing. In the beginning, I was buying these turnkey rentals that are all fixed up, rehabbed, and with a tenant in place. But since then, you know, since the, the next 200 or so podcasts, the story has kind of changed. But um, I think investors like the, you know, they hear the good and the bad and kind of the story on, you know, how I've kind of evolved as an investor. And um, you know, if you're, as so far I recommend for any investor or any employee right like you may never leave the day job but if you can put away you know five ten twenty thousand dollars to go buy a rental property and then that pays you more money to go buy the next one quicker you know that's that's the way you're out of the rat race to financial freedom um so my email is lane at simple passive cash flow and um yeah check out the podcast and uh, you know if you guys take a look listen to the first twelve podcast totally willing to get on the phone and uh just kind of seeing um how i can help out
0: Awesome. Awesome. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm super um, happy with, with uh, the types of uh, stories and, and concepts we've discussed today. And I really would encourage uh, listeners to, to reach out and to, to have a dialogue with you if this is something that seems to be of interest, you know, both from the, the investment standpoint, but also just from, the, from a different kind of career path, life um, trajectory kind of standpoint And thinking about leadership in different ways across different types of contexts, I think, is also helpful. So thank you again, Lane. Um, It was a pleasure talking with you. And I wish you and all my listeners uh, uh, to have a, a great week. Thanks, guys.